Good morning, Bethel. All right, so um, we've been out of our study the last few weeks. We've been going through the book of 2 Corinthians, and the plan is to get back there next Sunday and finish off chapter 4. Um, but with the kickoff of the uh, New City Catechism um, that we've been communicating over the last several weeks, are you ready with question run one? Because this is week one, right? So you're ready, right? Right? You're going to be tested very soon. Um, so anyway, we want to take a week right at the beginning of the year to focus on the biblical vision of generational faithfulness that is why we're doing the New City Catechism this year. So over and over again in Scripture, we see the call for one generation um, to live faithfully and raise succeeding generations in God's ways, so parents to kids and, and in the church to pass along the baton of faith um, to those that follow after us um, while we live and then certainly as we die and finish our race, um, we leave it behind um, to others that will follow after us. So the purpose of this morning's study in Psalm 145 is to consider that vision of generational faithfulness um, to motivate us to take up the challenge, um, one, of the New City Catechism, as well as a more broadly focused, you know, seeking God as grace for faithfulness, um, fruitfulness in our generation and for the sake of successive generations as we pass the baton on. Um, So here we go. Ready? Ready for question one? Um, We're not going to do this every week like this, but it's fitting for a few reasons to do it this morning. So what is our only hope in life and in death? I'll get you started. You can just join me. That we are not our own, but belong both in body and soul, in life and in death, or both in life and in death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay? Do you have the verse down? Romans 14, 7 and 8, right? For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live, whether we die, we are the Lord's. Okay? Good. So this past week on Wednesday nights at prayer meeting, um, we are going to be considering the catechism question and the verse um, kind of a meditation on that, so invitation to join us on Wednesday nights from 6.30 to 7.30 right over here. Okay, but this past Wednesday, um, we kind of camped out on this idea of belonging. So did you hear it there? What's our only hope in life and in death? That we are not our own, but we belong to God and to our Savior Jesus. So there's an encouraging edge to that truth, right? We are redeemed. He purchased us. And so there's this sweet ownership. It's freeing. We were freed from slavery to sin. It's securing. We're safe. We're secure. We know who we are because we know whose we are. Right? That's really encouraging. We're not cosmic orphans. We're not cosmic survivors, you know, just kind of having to be scrappy and make it work and get it done because nobody else is going to look after it. After us, no, we have a father, we have a shepherd, we have a, a good God that loves and cares for us. So we're not slaves of fate. We belong to the king of the universe. But there's also an exhortational edge to that belonging, isn't there? We are not masters of our own fate. So we're not slaves of fate, but we're also not masters of our own fate. We don't determine for ourselves what's right and wrong. We belong to another. So we don't live to please ourselves in a selfishly ambitious sort of way, but to please him and to please others. So we give ourselves wholly to him and to others. Our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price, so we glorify God in our body, right? So that's the exhortational edge to that truth. So I ran across an excerpt this week from Jim Elliott's journal. How many know who Jim Elliott was? Okay, so um, I think it was on the cover of Time back in the 50s when they were killed. These five missionaries were killed on what they called Palm Beach in Ecuador. They were trying to reach, they were speared to death. Um, They were trying to reach this violent tribe 
um, called the Wirani, and um, they had made some friendship, it seemed, with them. There's a whole long story as to what actually happened that day and why um, the tribe kind of turned on them and, and killed them. But what I ran across was a piece from Jim Elliott's journal. And what he actually wrote, it was the last thing he wrote before he died. So it was actually on the beach there as they were waiting for the, the, these folks from the tribe to come and meet them because they had more gifts and they were trying to build this relationship and get to know them. So these were the last recorded words as he and his friends were waiting for these folks to arrive. Here's what he wrote. I walked out to the hill just now. It is exalting, delicious to stand embraced by the shadows of a friendly tree with the wind tugging at your coattail and the heavens hailing your heart, to gaze and glory and give oneself again to God. He knew that he belonged to God. What more could a man ask? Oh, the fullness, pleasure, sheer excitement of knowing God on earth. I care not if I... Never raise my voice again for him. If only I may love him, please him. Perhaps in mercy he will give me a host of converts that I may lead them through the vast star fields to explore his delicacies whose finger ends set them to burning. Just his finger work, the stars. But if not, if only I may see him, touch his garments and smile into his eyes, ah, then... Not stars nor children shall matter, only himself. O oh, Jesus, master and center and end of all, how long before that glory is yours, which has so long awaited you? Now there is no thought of you among men. Then there shall be thought for nothing else. Now other men are praised. Then none shall care for any other's merits. Hasten, hasten, glory of heaven, take your crown, subdue your kingdom, enthrall your creatures. It's the last thing that we have from his pen. So for Jim Elliot, he knew that his life was not his own, but that he belonged to God and to his Savior, body and soul, in life and in death. That was his great hope. His only hope, just like the catechism says. And as a result, he had this incredible impact on succeeding generations. Certainly with his own family, but also that tribe. And then so many more were kind of called up for the cause of Christ as a result of his life and death and things that he said, like you probably know this line, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. How many people has that impacted? So, even though his life was cut short, his testimony, his praise of the greatness and the goodness of God and of his Savior Jesus has impacted countless people and generation after generation. So, that leads us into Psalm 145, and I think you'll see the connection uh, between the catechism question and Psalm 145 and why we're considering it this morning at the start of the year as we commit to the New City Catechism. Um, so turn in your Bible to page 524 if you're using the Pew Bible, um, and we're going to read Psalm 145. I'll read it, and you can follow along, and then we will dive in and study it together this morning. Psalm 145. Now, just give you the heads up. If you've been here for a while, you've heard me explain this before, but if you're visiting or new or whatever, where, where it says the Lord with all capital letters, L-O-R-D, four capital letters, um, that's translating the covenant name of God. Okay, Remember when Moses um, approached this burning bush and and God revealed himself to him, I am Yahweh, the self-existent one, the self-sufficient one, okay? It was his covenant name. And so Lord to us is a title, right? So the reason they translate it that way is because, you know, the, the Jews viewed his name as too holy to pronounce, to, to say. 
So anyway, there's a whole tradition there. But actually, God wanted us to know his name. He didn't want to just give us his title, but he wanted us to know and call him by name. So there's familiarity there, and there's intimacy there. So we want to represent that. So I'm going to actually read Yahweh, where it says, the Lord in all caps. Um, So just not to throw you off as to why I'm doing that. I'm giving a brief explanation. Okay, Psalm 145. Ready? A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Yahweh is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yahweh is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Yahweh, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Yahweh is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Yahweh upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Yahweh is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Yahweh preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Amen. All right, so there's a, uh, an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful to you, or I think the points will be on the slides up behind just to kind of help follow along as we work through this. So two big points that we're going to get out of this are that God is great and God is good. <laughs> in some sense, it's pretty simple. So great is Yahweh. That's the first point. Look at verse 3. It's repeated, obviously, for emphasis to make sure we get it. Great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. So, have you ever had this happen? Have you ever admired someone from a distance? And then, for whatever reason, you eventually get the chance to get to know that person better, and get up a little bit more closely and examine their life, and it became hard to keep them in the same high esteem. Has that ever happened? So it seemed like the closer you got, the more you saw the flaws and the weaknesses, and your estimation started to drop. Could have happened in your family. You know, our parents are kind of like super people, you know, like Superman, Superwoman, until we start to get older and realize, oh, they're not perfect, or happens in the workplace with an employer, a boss, someone over you, happens in the church, happens in politics at all levels. So how about also, have you ever run across a teacher or a thought leader or someone like that, an author, where their insights just wow you? 
and you just read everything that they write or listen to everything you can get your hands on, but you know, after a few months or maybe a few years, you feel like you've just heard everything that they've got to say. And they start to sound like a broken record or like a one-trick pony. And you kind of tire of their characteristic phrases and one-liners that they just, you know, come on, can you get some new material? Well, just imagine. Imagine a leader who only grows more admirable and more interesting the more you get to know him. That's what God's like. He is great and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is actually unsearchable. You cannot reach the bottom. You cannot climb to the peak. Isaiah 40, 28, have you not heard, have you not known the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? I mean, the more we know about God, the more we realize we don't know the more we realize that we are so small and he is so great, so big, so beyond us. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. They're so much higher. So if we don't have a sense of his greatness, if we're not in awe of God, it's actually on account of our limits and our smallness, not his. G.K. Chesterton wrote one time, The world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. Did you catch that? The world will never starve for want of wonders. This world is wonderful, crazy. And all the crazy, magical, wonderful wonder of it all is just a little token picture of how creative and powerful and awesome and interesting and beautiful God is. So the world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. Infinitely great is Yahweh, greatly to be praised. So this psalm repeatedly calls us to praise Him. Second point. Look how the psalm is titled, A Song of Praise. So, Psalms, it's like a songbook, book of poetry. And this one is all about praise. In fact, this is the only psalm to be given this label, even though there's praise all through the psalms, right? It's of David, and we can see that it's a song of praise. There are numerous words, or a number of different words, that the psalmist used for this theme of praise. So, extol, bless, praise, commend, declare, speak, pour forth, sing aloud, give thanks. So, it's kind of obvious what this psalm is all about, the praise of the greatness of our God. In fact, this psalm is actually an acrostic. You know what an acrostic is? Um, Each line starts with a different letter of the alphabet. So written in Hebrew, there's 22 letters in Hebrew. There's actually 21 lines. There's one letter missing. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, But anyway, so Aleph, Bet, Gimel, you know, Each line starts with a new Hebrew letter. Well, why did they do that? Why am I telling you this? Because oftentimes, acrostics were used by poets in the ancient Near East as a way to describe comprehensiveness. So the A to Z of whatever their subject was. Get it? A, B, okay. So this psalm is all about praising Yahweh for his greatness. So this psalm is the A to Z of praise. Praising the greatness of God. So we'll see it teaching us to praise him for his attributes, who he is in himself, and for his works, his actions, what he's done. So it teaches us to praise him for those two things. It also teaches us to praise Yahweh in two directions. 
both vertically and horizontally. Okay? So let me explain what I mean by that. So verse the vertical, look at verses 1 and 2. I will extol you, speaking to God. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. That's vertical. Speaking to God. We did this this morning when we sung Great is Thy Faithfulness. Who are we talking to? Like, we're so thankful that you, you keep your promises, that we can bank on your promises. We can trust in you. You're like rock beneath our feet, not like quicksand. You're faithful. Great is your faithfulness. And we just want to declare it and thank you for it and just exclaim our confidence in it. So that, that's vertical, right? But also, we see horizontal faithfulness. I'm sorry, horizontal praise um, here in this psalm. Did you know that there was such a thing as horizontal praise of God? We did it, actually, already this morning. Did you notice? So that song, How Great Is Our God, How Great Is Our God, Sing With Me. Who are you talking to? We're talking to each other on a horizontal level. You weren't talking to God when you sung that one. I mean, we kind of are, and, you know, yeah. Or Come Praise and Glorify, the, the other song we sung. Who are we talking to? We're kind of calling each other to worship. We're saying, hey, man, it's so easy to live like an earthworm and be busy, 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 and like this, you know, walking through the week and kind of tunnel vision and whatever, like, and I'm anxious and freaked out and stressed and depressed and whatever, and I just need to, like, come look up and be reminded of what's true and who God is and all that he is for me in Jesus. And we're, we're calling each other to just kind of wake up and focus on what we ought to be focusing on. So this horizontal praise is happening. Another way that this horizontal praise happens is found in verse 4. Check it out. This is actually really the clear connection with the New City Catechism and why we're doing it. Um, so you could, you could write this as a, as a banner over the New City Catechism. Verse 4, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. You see that word commend? That's really, really important that God chose through the pen of David for that word to be commend and not just say teach. It doesn't say teach, although teaching is important. It could be translated commend or praise, praise your works to another. It could be translated boast of, like we boast in the Lord when you are just bursting with pride in something in a good way, like grandparents boast of their grandkids, you know? Let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. So, do you see this is an issue of the heart, of where your affections are, where your delights are, because you only boast in and praise and commend to other people things that you're excited about, things that thrill you, things that you value and enjoy. So the question is, does God own your, my affections? Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. So are you flat and businesslike and kind of just like, you know, ritualistic duty, dot, 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 when it comes to God, maybe even yawning when it comes to the things of God? And then do you gush over other things and people? Do you ever see that happening? Does that ever like, catch your attention and go, wait a second, this isn't right? Would you rather, how many of you know the video YouTube channel or whatever it is? People are awesome. Oh my word. Wow. <laughs> I'm picking the wrong. Okay, so let me tell you about people are awesome. Um, it is pretty amazing. I mean, people can do some pretty amazing things. Like, you know what parkour is? People like jumping from building to building or like it's weird, crazy stuff. Just people doing all kinds of weird, acrobatic, amazing things, jumping over cars when they're driving. I mean, okay. Anyway, so that happens. People could, you know, Olympics, there's people can do crazy things, right? So 
you can imagine someone watching a video or two like this and just being amazed and like, hey, grabbing their friend or grabbing their kids or grabbing their, and like, hey, you got to see this. Or do you gush over, over tech or gush over food? Are you a foodie? Or do you gush over, you know, the, the movie that you saw or whatever it is? Do you ever gush over God? Who has, who owns your awe? So Psalm 78 is kind of a helpful parallel to Psalm 145. Listen to what it says there. Just I'll read a couple verses here. We will not hide but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should... It's not just information transfer for the sake of information transfer so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. So just we're not talking to just the parents here this morning. This is all of us, but parents, who's the most important person in your child's life? God. God is the most important person in your child's life. Does your child know him? Like, could your child get to know him in your house? Because you're talking about him. Because how can you not talk about the one who owns your affections, your heart? We can't pass along something we don't possess. So who's the most important person? This is for all of us. Who's the most important person in your life? Well, God is, but is God the most important person in your life, in my life? This is the most important and valuable inheritance that we can leave to our children or to successive generations. If you don't have kids, you're still included in this. Spiritual fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles and so forth. So your testimony of the greatness and the goodness of God is the most valuable inheritance you can leave your children or grandchildren. Again, if you don't have any children, you can have children in the faith. You can have people you invest in and disciple and mentor. You're involved in children's ministry. You're involved in student ministry. You can do this. Older guys mentoring younger fathers and husbands and Older women mentoring younger women and so forth. What we all need most is to know God. And if we know God, then we can give that gift to others. Frederick Douglass once said, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. There's no better way to build strong children than to commend to them the strength and greatness of God. That's why we're doing the New City Catechism. And not just the New City Catechism. That's why we do Sunday school. So we do all kinds of things. It's why we should be doing this in our homes. Ronald Reagan once said, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. Or one day we will spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was like, what it was once like in the United States when men were free. So riffing off of that, I think it's often been said that Christianity is always one generation away from extinction. I think that's a little bit of hyperbole. Um, But the gospel certainly can be lost for a generation or for generations. I mean, Britain was a bastion of rich Christian faith in the 1800s. And it's been like a a spiritual wasteland in the last several decades, though there's certainly bright spots and there's encouraging signs of life even now. So to to fail at Psalm 145.4, commending God and his works, his grace, his glory to the next generation, is to invite judges to. 
the passage Tyler wrote. Did you see that? Do you see how that's the opposite of Psalm 145? So the people served Yahweh all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua. They had seen all these great works. Like God had worked this mighty deliverance. Oh my word, look at all that he did. Those who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua died at the age of 110 years. All the generation gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done. So just to help you feel, maybe feel how wrong this is. I'm not talking about just brainwashing. I'm talking about indoctrination. You can imagine some people. No, we're talking about if God is God and he is so great and so good, we would be withholding the greatest gift from future generations. So just to help you feel how wrong this would be to fail at Psalm 145, 4, imagine someone saving your life at extreme personal cost, and then later in life, you kind of forget about them, you snub them, you fail to say anything to your kids about them, and then you run into them at a wedding and your kids are with you. And imagine your son just treats this guy rudely when you encounter, and you just don't even say anything or do anything about it. Like, it's just like, oh, oh that's weird, that's terrible. Or, 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 you know, think of some young punk treating a veteran from the greatest generation, you know, really poorly. They've got no clue of the sacrifice, no clue of the risk that was assumed, and losses suffered for the sake of that young punk's freedom and prosperity. Or think about 9-11. Remember the motto, never forget well, there's obviously a reason for that, but it certainly will happen. It probably already has. How many of you know who Todd Beamer was? Okay, so one of the flights, Flight 93, the one, we don't know where it was actually headed, but it crashed in Pennsylvania, remember? And let's roll, you remember this? Okay, so, and there was others, not just him. So it seems like they kept that one from becoming a flying bomb at whatever target it was intended to hit. But what if Todd's Beamer's grandkids didn't even hear of what he did? Wouldn't that be so wrong? In fact, what if one of them joined an Al-Qaeda cell? One of his grandkids. Like, oh, that's crazy. Well, what if because of our failure, our kids, grandkids, don't even hear about the greatness? We just kind of assume it, you know, we're focused on all these other things. And our grandkids, atheists. It's like the other team, <laughs> you know? So this is why Passover, for instance, among other things, was this important annual festival. This is why the Lord's Table is a good regular reminder. Do you remember how the people of Israel were instructed about the Passover? Exodus 12, just listen. When your children say to you, what does this mean? This, this feast that we're, this festival, this ritual, like what, what does this mean? You shall say it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover for he passed over the houses of the people in Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. Like let me tell you about what he did for us. We don't want you to forget his works, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his power. Let me tell you about it. Deuteronomy 6 says this, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in the promised land, and give us the land that he swore to give to our forefathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. So that's why we do this, and that's why we do this. Look down at verse 6, Psalm 145. Verse 6, they shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. So 
what comes to mind? What do you gush over? What does your mind gravitate to when you just have downtime or waiting time or thinking time? What do you want to know more about? What do you want to see more of? What do you want to experience more? What do you want to taste more of? What do you want to drink in more of? God. There's lots of good things. I'm not saying, you know, we should go, you know, live like ascetics in the wilderness and do nothing. But, you know, but the point is, every good gift is, is a sunbeam. We trace it back to the sun. Oh, how good God must be to give us this and this. Everything is about God. So a little assignment if you have kids. might be a little threatening, a little humbling, but it's worth it. If you have kids, ask your kids or grandkids. Ask your grandkids. What is daddy most passionate about? What's mommy most passionate about? What's grandpa, whatever they call you, grandma, most passionate about? And just listen, okay? Don't, don't try to defend yourself or explain, you know, if they give the wrong answer. Wait a second. So when other things own our loves, our affections, that's what we end up talking about when we sit at home and when we walk by the way and when we lie down and when we rise up, right? Deuteronomy 6. That's what you end up commending to the next generation. So you can see why it's important for us to guard our heart and, and love the Lord our God with all our heart. So if you don't find yourself speaking of the might of God's awesome deeds, like it says here, if you don't find yourself declaring God's greatness, if you don't find the fame of his abundant goodness pouring forth from your mouth, there's hope. The psalmist tells us just what to do. Look at point number three, verse five. Meditate on his attributes and his actions. So on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. So remember, it's his person, who he is, his character, and it's his works, all that he's done, his track record. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. This is what we need to do intentionally in 2018. We need to be impressed with God. I don't know about you, but that's something I need in 2018. I want to be impressed with God. I want to be in awe of God. I want to be thankful, not cranky and complaining. I want to be joyful, not mopey and, you know, Eeyore. I want to be thrilled. But again, if, if we only are excited when stuff goes our way, you know, it's going to be like a roller coaster. But what if you could have joy in God and a person who never changes and, and he's always there for you and he's, his greatness is unsearchable, so you're never going to hit the bottom of it. This is what we need. We need to meditate on his person and his works. Psalm 111.2 says, Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. So let's pull these first three points together. Okay? Um, he's great. We've got to praise him, meditate on his attributes and actions. So let's just kind of pull those together. Think about your average week. Think about this past week, maybe, this past month. How aware are you on a regular basis, daily, weekly basis, of the greatness of God? Does that cross your radar screen much? Outside of Sunday mornings, how often do you actually praise God? And I'm not talking about breaking out in, you know, spontaneous, life is a musical singing, although that might happen. I'm talking about being impressed with God's greatness and actually saying something about it to him. Thank you, Lord. You are. Or to a friend, somebody in your community group. You just see something in the Word that day or something in, in your life or in creation, and you just have to just get on the phone or text somebody and just say, God is so great. Or to a coworker, whether they're a Christian or not a Christian. Or to your child. If this doesn't happen much, I say this in love, I'm saying this to my own heart, we're not very spiritually healthy if we're not doing this much. 
Psalm 145, 1 to 7, is like describing spiritual health of the whole song. This is like a prescription for soul health. When we are awake and alive to and in tune with the glory, the greatness, the majesty, the great works of God, it's thrilling, and we won't be able to keep silent about it. So I don't know about you, but I'm convicted here, and I need this psalm. I want this kind of soul health. I want to be not just so excited about little things that are so fleeting and so trivial and so small and kind of like flat and dull to the greatness of God. I want to be more impressed with, more in awe of God than anyone or anything else in my life. Did you hear what I meant? I meant... meant, this is not a competition. I'm not trying to be, you know, more impressed with God than you. What I'm saying is more impressed with God than I am impressed with any other thing or person because he's the best. He's the greatest. So if we're not thankful, not praising the Lord, it's indicative of soul sickness. C.S. Lewis once wrote, praise is inner health made audible. We praise what we enjoy. If we're not praising the Lord, we must be finding our joy someplace else. And our joy is going to be very fragile and very fleeting if it's not in the Lord. This commentator I read this week, um, W.S. Plummer, he wrote this, Nothing has a more pernicious effect, negative effect on character than low thoughts of God. (laughs) We should labor to have elevated views of his excellent greatness. Human virtue and greatness have their limits where spots appear and poverty begins, but the greatness of God is unsearchable and inexpressible. Unless we have great thoughts of God, our thoughts of sin will be low and our praises will be dull because if our thoughts of sin are low, then we're not going to think much of his grace either. Listen to 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why does he do all that? Why does he pour out all that grace and mercy? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now look at the end of verse 7, the fame of your abundant goodness. It leads us into our next point, um, and it's a good thing because I think we can be pretty convicted by the fact that we fall short of, of duly praising God's greatness. Um, we ought to be thrilled that he's also good and gracious. <laughs> this is encouraging. Um, It's his goodness and his mercy that we're going to focus on in the latter half here that forgives our blindness and dullness to his greatness. And it's his goodness that actually enables us to see his greatness. If it weren't for his goodness, we'd never see or delight in his greatness. So for what this is worth, these points are going to go quicker, (laughs) in case anybody's nervous. Um, Point number four, Yahweh is good. So Yahweh is great, Yahweh is good, verses 8 to 21, but we're going to do this a bit quicker. So Yahweh is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. He's got a long fuse, and he's abounding in steadfast love. He's great in steadfast love. So again, this is who he is in himself, but also we see it worked out in his works. Yahweh is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he's made. So it is who he is in himself, and it is it characterizes his works, what he does. He's good to all. His mercy is over all that he's made, both his attributes and his actions. So verse 8 is an echo of of Exodus 34. Remember, Moses said, show me your glory. And, And the Lord passed before Moses and said, I'm Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So Moses wanted to see God's glory. That's what he heard, this description of his character. And then, as the story goes along, if you really want to see the glory of God, 
you really want to know what he's like, if you want to see his person and see him at work, listen to John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the New Testament equivalent to gracious and merciful. I'm sorry, uh, uh, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So if you want to see the glory of God, we look to Jesus. We look to the cross. Talk about deliverance. Talk about his mighty works. Talk about the, the kind of going public and visible with his gracious, good, great, merciful, compassionate, kind heart. If you want to see it, look at Jesus. So this is just one part of a big story. Psalm 145 fits into the whole story of creation, God's dealings with his people. And we can look at the cross and see this grace and mercy, slow to anger, not giving us what we deserve, abounding in steadfast love, good to all, giving his son. He is infinitely great, and yet he's willing to be humble and to stoop all the way down to our level to become one of us in order to take our sins on the cross, to give himself for us in our place as a substitutionary sacrifice so that we can be forgiven and cleansed and reconciled to him so that he can give us himself. That's how great, that's how good our God is. There's so much to meditate on, to meditate on his works and find ourselves thrilled with who he is. In fact, the greatness of his greatness makes the goodness of his goodness that much more amazing. And the goodness of his goodness makes the greatness of his greatness that much more amazing. So if some, you know, equal with you was really good to you, that's good. But what if some great person was amazingly good to you? Then that goodness is that much better. Well, this is the greatest person being greater, I mean, gooder, better than anybody's ever been to you. So we ought to praise him. Verses 10 to 12. All your works, we're going to do this quickly here. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, Yahweh, and all your saints shall bless you. So do you see, if we meditate on who he is, his greatness, his goodness, if we really see it, really experience it, really know it, we can't help but give thanks to bless him, to speak of his glory, the glory of his kingdom, to tell of his power, to make known to the children of man his mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of his kingdom. It's so fitting. It's so right. This is generational faithfulness right here. To praise him. And, last point, to look to him. We'll just go quickly through these last verses here. Look at verse 14. Yahweh upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. Oh, man, isn't that good news? Here is help and strength for those who have lost hope. Anybody? For those who have failed. Anybody? For those who are depressed and downcast. Anybody? Like for those who are feeling helpless and weak. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up those who are bowed down. Look to him. This is Yahweh, the the lifter of our heads, the straightener of our backs, because he can set us free from our burdens and the things that enslave us. He can deliver us. He can free us. He can encourage us. I mean, this is revival. This is encouragement. This is hope. How great, how good is our God? We can look to him. He will deliver you, and you will have reason to praise him, and then you will commend him to the next generation. Do you see how it goes? So let's pray that we will experience his glory and just delight in his works and experience his deliverance and his power and his encouragement and joy for ourselves as we look to him. We will then praise him for his greatness and his goodness and it will spread in our homes, in our church, in our community.
So you can spend a little time this afternoon meditating on the riches that remain in the rest of Psalm 145. Um, but we'll just draw this to a close here. You can look at those verses yourself. Um, but look down at the end. Verse 21 is a fitting conclusion. My mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Personal resolve, my mouth, I'm going to praise Yahweh. He's so great. He's so good. I'm going to meditate on his character and his works so that my mouth is filled with his praise. And just let everyone share this joy with me so that they praise him too. That's a good way to end. Our generational faithfulness, passing the baton on to our children and our grandchildren, is rooted and it grows in our understanding of our delight in God, His faithfulness, generation by generation, forever and ever, His greatness. And it's His faithfulness, His goodness and His greatness that will produce our faithfulness as we trust in Him. So let's pray and then we're going to participate in the Lord's table together. Father, you are great and you are good. And I pray that we would be thrilled with who you are and what you've done. Help us, Lord, to meditate on all your works and on your glorious, majestic character. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us soft hearts to perceive and receive all this grace. Own our awe and help us to faithfully, authentically, passionately pass the baton of truth and grace and glory to the generations that follow us. We can only be faithful because you are faithful. So we praise your faithfulness and ask for your help. We look to you and we thank you that all the grace we need flows to us because of Jesus. And so it's in his name that we pray. Amen.